The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. Good morning. My name is Sarah Spaniolo, and I'm the Director of Hospitality here, and I have the honor of um, reading today's scripture teaching. It comes from Isaiah 6, 1 through 8. This is Isaiah's vision of the Lord. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two, he covered his face, and with two, he covered his feet, and with two, he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, Here I am, send me. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks for that, Sarah. Good morning, everybody. It's so great to be with you. That includes those of you who are uh, taking extra precaution at home. Uh, We welcome you with us as well from your living rooms or uh, wherever it is that that the Lord finds you this morning. And and, uh, my hope is that the Lord will find us, uh, even as he, he found Mary and Zechariah and the shepherds and uh, all the others during the uh, uh, season of Advent, the first coming of Jesus Christ. Now, if you've been around here for a while, uh, if you've uh, been through a season of, of my teaching and preaching during the Advent holidays in particular, you know that I begin listening to Christmas music sometime around August. Uh, I, I'm actually a pace setter in that regard uh, because uh, you've noticed that people have started to put up their Christmas trees a little bit early this year and breaking out the hymns and, and uh, it is because we all long for hope and maybe it's just me that every year I just, I just feel worn out by August and, and need the hope, uh, you know, starting in August. But, but the rest of us now, we've, we've started to think about Advent a good bit early, even as a church. Uh, we're doing an extended series that begins today uh, on Advent, and uh, the name of the series is A Weary World Rejoices, and uh, that's taken straight from uh, uh, O Holy Night, which is a, a historic, beautiful uh, Advent hymn, and today's message, the title is The Healing of Unclean Lips. All of these messages are going to come from Isaiah's prophecy. Uh, We aren't going to get to do Handel's Messiah this year, uh, and so we're going to preach the texts that that, uh, Handel's Messiah is based upon, and so we'll, we'll, we'll get Messiah that way. So the reason people are weary right now, the reason why we feel compelled to, to preach 
a series uh, assuming the context of a weary world is that there's been political unrest, polarization, and of course, the pandemic this year. And, and out of the pandemic has come things like economic ruin, loneliness, depression, uh, and even death. Foundations are being shaken uh, during this season of history. And the setting for Isaiah is actually quite similar, not, not just personally, but also socio-politically. He, he mentions here that it's in the, the year that King Uzziah died that he was given a vision of the Lord. In the year that King Uzziah died. So that was a very significant statement for the people of Israel because Uzziah's reign represented a long stretch of peace and prosperity. He was a beloved king, and he lost his character later in life, and uh, God chastened him for that, and he died. And what's also about to happen is the Assyrian armies are about to invade Israel. They see it coming because the Assyrians are gaining progress in their, their scorched earth approach to taking over everything. And Israel is somewhere close to next on their list. And so they're approaching something similar to the Great Depression, but with a lot of violence added to it, and then exile and slavery. But what's surprising here in this text, even though he mentions that this is the year that everything changes nationally, socially, culturally, because Uzziah, our, our hero king, is dead. His greatest trauma has nothing to do with world events. His deepest concerns and anxieties and the things that keep him up at night have nothing to do with world events. The same was true for Joseph and Mary when Jesus is announced. It's not their youth, it's not their lack of money, it's not the fact that they live in a kingdom uh, led by a violent, megalomaniac, anti-Semitic king. Those weren't their main concerns, those weren't their main traumas. Their main trauma was that God was coming into their home. The king in the cradle was the greatest threat, as ironic and strange as that sounds. This is the Advent reality. When Christ comes, Advent means coming. The coming of Christ shows us that that which is most wonderful can also be that which is most disorienting and terrifying. And the two don't cancel each other out. The two are not mutually exclusive. Wonder and fear go together in the story of God and in the story of Advent. So I'm going to go through three points today. The first is the trauma of meeting God. The second is the rebuilding power of grace. And then the final point will be the trauma of being God. So let's start first with the trauma of meeting God. So Charlie Brown Christmas you may uh, be familiar with that scene where Linus breaks open a King James Bible and starts reading out of Luke chapter 2, the Advent narrative. And Linus reads, The angel of the Lord came upon the shepherds, and the glory 
big word here in Isaiah 6, the glory of the Lord shone round about them and they were sore afraid. Not just afraid, but sore afraid. If you go to the original language, uh, the Greek is phobos, phobos. We get our word phobia from that. But it's repeated twice. The shepherds were afraid, afraid. They weren't just afraid, they were afraid, afraid. Sore afraid. And when he appears to Mary and Zechariah and others, they have a, a similar reaction. It says that they're struck with fear. When the angel of the Lord comes to them with good news, they're struck with fear. Because they're awakened to who it is they're dealing with. So in Isaiah's vision, King Uzziah is dwarfed by the implications of the appearing of a cosmic king, the cosmic king. And he, and he says, his immediate response is, woe to me, I'm ruined. I'm a man of unclean lips. And I live among a people of unclean lips and my eyes have seen the king, the Lord Almighty. Woe is me. Why is it so traumatic? Well, it, we see here that, that, that smoke is, is coming up in the temple and where there's smoke, there's fire. And as the scriptures tell us, our God is a consuming fire. You know, Icarus wanted to touch the sun and it, and it destroyed him. God is not somebody to be messed or tampered with, in other words. The foundation is shaking. You know, one of the commentaries said there was a God quake in the temple of God. And even the seraphs who are angels, they're perfect, morally perfect beings without sin, without any moral stain in them. It says that even the seraphs cover their faces. Now, when do we cover our face? We cover our faces when we're embarrassed. We cover our faces when we, we feel exposed and, and when that, that, that emotion of shame starts to rush in. And so you've got these perfect beings, the seraphs, covering their faces. Maybe they just finished reading uh, from the philosopher Jean-Paul Sartre, who said, hell is to be looked at. Hell is to be under the gaze of another set of eyes. And so they cover their faces out of shame. They're morally perfect, and yet they also are sore afraid. They are also afraid, afraid, when they see the Holy One. But he's not just holy, he's holy, holy, holy. This is the only attribute of God. When, 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 when somebody in the scriptures, when, when an angelic being or when a person describes God, it's the only attribute of God, his holiness, that's repeated three times. Now, repetition in the Bible means emphasis. It's like an exclamation point, but this is like several exclamation points. He is holy with, with many explanation points. Now, now his holiness is, is his superlativeness. It's, it's, it's that attribute that reminds us that he's higher than we are, that he's greater than we are, that he's stronger than we are, that he's wiser than we are. He's superlative to, he's superlative to us in every single way. He's more loving than we are. He's more kind and good than we are. So it's remarkable that even the angels are covering their face and crying, holy, holy, holy. But what's also remarkable is that when Isaiah 
starts feeling ashamed as well. When Isaiah wants to run and hide, the first thing he thinks about is his lips. And he says, I'm a man of unclean lips. He doesn't say my hands are unclean. He doesn't say my feet are unclean or my heart is unclean. He says my lips are unclean. Now think about this. Isaiah's greatest source of shame becomes the very best and most accomplished part of him. He's a prophet. He's a word guy. He's a devout word guy. And to his devoutness, he says, unclean. And to his lips, he says, unclean. I'm unclean in my character, and I'm unclean in my profession. I'm unclean in my greatest competency because my eyes have seen the king in comparison. Now, for a prophet, your lips are on the top line of your resume in bold print, especially this prophet, who's the most quoted Old Testament prophet in the history of the world, including in the New Testament. Your lips, if you're a prophet, are like your legs if you're a sprinter, or your fingers if you're a surgeon or a guitarist, or, or your mind if you're a scholar. It's your pride and joy. And so it's not just the foundations of the temple that are shaken for Isaiah. It's the very foundation of his life. It's the very foundation of the thing that gives him his identity, that makes him a person of note in his community, his lips. You know, we think we're great until somebody greater, uh, until somebody greater steps into our presence or we step into theirs. Greatness is, is something we measure by comparison, and, and this, this, is a, this is a comparison. This is a preliminary echo of what Peter would later say, be holy in all that you are and all that you do, just as your God is holy. How on earth? How on earth can I measure up to this? So anybody a This Is Us fan? Anybody watch that show? We love This Is Us. And uh, remember when, uh, this was in the earlier season, Mandy Moore, her character uh, has had great success in the city of Pittsburgh singing in small venues and bars and, and so on. And, and, and because she's gotten so much applause and so many accolades locally in Pittsburgh for her music, she decides she's going to drive all the way across the country to Los Angeles and audition for a record label uh, uh, executive. Uh, to see if maybe she can start a, a career in music. And, and y y you musicians, if you've seen this scene, you remember it, and it probably makes your gut turn over. Uh, you know, she goes in, and, and she, she, she sings for them. She gives them a demo uh, record, and they have no feedback. And they, they kind of give her this, don't call us, we'll, we'll call you, have a nice trip home. And, and she says, well, wait, you know, be before I leave, can you at least tell me, was I good? And these two Los Angeles music executives said, well, where are you from? And she says, I'm from Pittsburgh. And they said, well, you're Pittsburgh good. Isaiah is human good, but he's not divine good. In fact, nobody is divine good except the divine one himself. And you go to Vanderbilt as a freshman, 
And if you go to Vanderbilt as a freshman, you probably graduated somewhere close to the top of your class in high school. A lot of high school valedictorians go to Vanderbilt and salutatorians and perfect SAT score students go to Vanderbilt. But it doesn't take long at Vanderbilt, and, and this is part of why stress levels are so high at schools like Vanderbilt. And anxiety is so high at schools like Vanderbilt because all those valedictorians start to realize, I've got a 50-50 chance of being in the bottom half of my class. I've never experienced that in my life. But 50% of the smart, smart, of the smart, 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 holy, 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 smart, smart, smart students at some point have the potential of reaching a place of saying, I'm ruined. I have an unclean mind and unclean student abilities and academic abilities. For my eyes have seen smarter people, but, it, but it's nothing to compare yourself to another person when compared to what it's like to compare yourself with God. There is no comparison. That's why Isaiah says later in the book about his righteousness, about his best works, he says they're filthy rags. This is an essential sign of a God encounter that you're shaken. Job, the most righteous person in the land, when he gets a glimpse of God, he says, my eyes have seen you and I despise myself. I repent in dust and ashes. Peter, after he observes Jesus' teaching from a boat, he says, go away, Lord, I'm a sinful man. And so if you're looking for a religion that's aimed at building your self-esteem, Christianity is not it. You know, self-esteem isn't that great of a thing, right? Like, like, like the, the self-esteem movement in a culture and in a home actually ends up backfiring. It produces a bunch of narcissists who get their feelings hurt really easily, who can't tolerate ideas that they don't agree with. Like self-esteem is not really the greatest thing in the world. It may feel good for a time like cocaine does, but, but it's gonna hurt you. And it's gonna hurt the world around you. And so God breaks down Isaiah's self-esteem, not because God doesn't love Isaiah, but because God does love Isaiah. Not because God doesn't love Israel, that, that Isaiah is a preacher to, but because he does love Israel. He hits his self-esteem like a wrecking ball. And you say, well, where's the gospel in that? Well, what is the gospel? Romans 1.16 is the power. Greek word there is dynamite. The gospel is the dynamite of God for salvation for those who believe, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. What does, what does dynamite do? It explodes things. You light a stick of dynamite, you're running the other way as fast as you can so you don't get your face blown off. The gospel is dynamite. It's the dynamite of God. It destroys lesser foundations to build greater ones. It destroys lesser loves to provide a greater one. It wrecks so as to rebuild. Isaiah's greatest vulnerability is that part of him that wants to lean on his gift package, lean on his wealth, lean on his education, lean on his pedigree, lean on his popularity, lean on the fact that he gets invited to all the dinner parties and all the VIP events to lean on those things. That's his greatest vulnerability. 
Because if Isaiah is ever going to make a difference in the world, he's got to figure out what it means to become shy about himself and boastful about God, period. Bashful about himself. Exuberant about God. And of course, you read the rest of his prophecy, you see that's precisely the person he becomes. Okay, so let's move on from that. I thought this was supposed to be a series on hope and comfort. Look, you can't get to hope without going through dynamite. You, you can't get to hope without being, having your foundation shaken. You can't. There is no bypass road to get to hope. You've got to go through the trauma of meeting God. But then there's, when you meet God, what, what, what meets you in your trauma is a surprise, the rebuilding power of grace. And it's immediate. Isaiah doesn't have to wait for it. It's immediate. As Isaiah prepares to die, like everybody else in the Bible prepares to die when they get a glimpse of even a part of God, the angel of the Lord appears to him with a blazing coal. Oh no, that's terrifying. Yes, it is because God's a consuming fire and it comes from the altar of God and so he's going to consume me and the angel gets closer and closer and it touches his lips. That coal goes straight to the source of shame and here's what we think. We think, this is what we think about God. He's going straight to the source of our shame in order to amplify our shame and to, to crush us and to destroy us for the, over the fact that we're not enough. And here comes that, you know, incoming angel with the fire of God toward Isaiah's dirty lips. And the effect on his lips, though, is not to cremate them. But to, to Isaiah's surprise, the effect on his lips is to purify them like fire purifies gold. Fire does not destroy or cremate gold. He wants to make Isaiah a man of golden lips. Fire melts gold and it purifies gold by, by, by cremating all the impurities in the gold, leaving nothing but a greater shine, a greater glory a more solid substance. So there's the, the healing coal. There's also the train of the Lord's robe that he mentions. Other translations say the hem of his robe. Where else in the Bible do we read about a hem? Where else in the Bible do we read about the hem of God? It, it, it's in Luke chapter 8, where there's a bleeding woman. She's got you know, some sort of hemophiliac you know, affliction happening to her, and she spent her, her entire life savings over the course of many years on health care, and for whatever reason, none of the health care has worked. It's one of those incurable situations, and all it takes for her is to touch the hem of Jesus' garment for her to be healed. What you think might destroy you, you still need to move toward it because it's also the only thing that can heal you. And in fact, when you, when you go to, to the hem or you, go, or, or, or you receive the fiery coal for healing, you will be healed. You will be healed. Isaiah becomes a man of honest confession. His, his defenses are down. And this is actually one of the most remarkable things about the Holy Bible. The Holy Bible is filled with unholy men and women. 
And, and what gives them their power is not, and not the power of pretense, not the power of putting on a shiny face in your Sunday best. What gives them power is they start talking in the church sanctuary like people talk in the church basement. Who's in the church basement? 12-step recovery groups. Which starts, I'm a wreck, I'm a mess, I'm the problem, I'm a disaster, I need help. And it's open, and it's transparent, and it's communal, and there's no shame, there's no guilting. And, and the no shame, no guilting, utterly transparent climate of the church basement is actually what he leads to great healing and greater holiness. Isaiah is resolute with all the rest of the heroes of the faith in the Bible to take the transparency of the church basement and bring it into the church sanctuary. And that's precisely what he does here. Talks about his unclean lips. There's also Jonah, judgmental and mean. How'd you like to have Jonah as your roommate? Just disappointing him all the time. Can't do anything right with Jonah. Well, how do we know that Jonah was judgmental and mean? Because of the book of Jonah. And who wrote the book of Jonah? Jonah. Or Paul, who writes in Romans 7 transparently about his own internal struggle that nobody else sees with coveting, which becomes the avenue to grace in Romans 8. Or he talks to Timothy about how he was once a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man. You know, James, the half-brother of Jesus, in his letter in chapter 5, verse 16, he says, confess your sins. But he doesn't just say confess your sins to God. He says, do what Isaiah did. Confess your sins to others. Record it. Publicize it. Confess your sins to one another. Why? So that you may be healed. Not cremated. Not consumed. But purified. Honest confession. And then right after honest confession always comes amazing grace. Words that make souls stronger. Do you, do you think even for a moment that if you were to go to God with your guilt and shame, look, you're transparent with another person. You say, hey, I'm really struggling. I'm really, really struggling with anger right now. I'm really struggling with lust. Or I, 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 just, I can't stop shaming and scolding my children. Or I'm so cold toward my spouse. You know, how many people in your Friendships? do you know that would turn away from you if you started talking that transparently to them and self-disclosing with such vulnerability? No, when somebody self-discloses, when somebody gets vulnerable, that breaks down all the, wall, all the walls and people move toward each other, not away from each other. That's the, that's the miracle of 12 steps. You don't even have to believe in God for the miracle to work. People, they're non-believing non people in 12 steps who heal better and faster than Christians do, who have the Holy Spirit, the resurrecting power of God at their fingertips and never access it because they are afraid to tell the truth about themselves. Confess your sins and you will be healed. If people warm up to us, how much must God warm up to us? The one who created us and calls himself our father when we confess. And that's what Isaiah does. And, and the, the immediate response to unclean lips is, your guilt is removed. Your sin is, it's like, it's like the angel has just been waiting with bated breath. 
like a horse in the gate, just waiting for somebody to open the gate. Boom, right to Isaiah. Here's a coal. I'm going to heal you with the coal. And, 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 and your guilt has been removed. And your sin has been atoned for. Good news. Now who will go? Ah, here am I. Send me. Wait, I haven't given you the job description yet. I don't care. Send me. Send me. You know, there's some, there's some church experience stories that keep us ministers in ministry for the rest of our lives. And one is with a guy that I'll call Mike. This was several years ago in uh, one of the churches that we planted. And Mike was a very successful, very good-looking guy, decorated athletic career, uh, made millions, uh, really great at his job. The optics on his life were beautiful, but he hated himself. And in that self-hatred, he developed an addiction to oxycodone and started chasing it down with Jack Daniels, and it was a train wreck. And one night, I get a call late at night from his wife saying, he's by himself in the house, and he's got a loaded gun. And we left. I took the kids. I don't know what to do. And so a couple of us drove to Mike's house, and there he was. And the first words out of his mouth to me, his pastor, were, I hate myself, and I know that God hates me too. And the words that came to my mind were from Cormac McCarthy's No Country for Old Men, where the sheriff says this. I always thought when I got older, God would sort of come into my life in some way. He didn't. I don't blame him. If I was him, I'd have the same opinion about me that he does. That's less an opinion about himself than it is an opinion about God. And I think we all walk around, at least in certain seasons, having an opinion about God that he has opinions of us that are so much less than what he really thinks of us. The only thing I could think of to say back to Mike in that moment was, you're just like the prodigal son who's run away from his father's home in Luke chapter 15. Do you remember that father, that father who waited on the porch, always looking, always trying to find that son, always wanting to embrace that son and to bring him back home and celebrate, always. And then I said, you know, if, if that parable is true about the prodigal son, it's true about everybody. It's true about both of us that God the Father is looking for you right now, and, and there's an argument, a very strong argument to be made that he loves you more now. And he's more moved with affection towards you now than he ever was when you were in the house. God's affections are stirred most, not by Mike the successful millionaire, not by Mike the athlete with a lot of trophies, not by Mike who looks like a GQ model. God's affections are stirred the most by Mike the addict, by Mike the junkie, by Mike in the church basement. The most unclean things about you. Do you realize those are the things about you that stir the love, the longing, and the pursuit of God toward you more than anything else? He didn't come because you're pretty and put together. That's not why Jesus came. 
I'm going to come for all the good people. No, I'm going to come for all the messed up people who recognize it and who own it and who confess it, that they may be healed. Remember, Jesus is a physician. Came not for the righteous, but for sinners. He became not, came not for the healthy, but for the sick. He really meant those words. He really meant those words. And what does it lead to for Isaiah? A Godward life. Same thing for Mike. Mike later became an elder in the church. And he was a great one. He was spectacular. Because after that, anybody that, that, that was in a ditch, I just sent him to Mike. And Mike had this healing effect on others. So he was able to spread the love that Christ had given to him. But in, in verses 9 and following, and this is what we're going to focus on next week, like if you feel like you know, 2020 is the year of anticlimax, the, the year of lost momentum, the year of lost everything, next Sunday is the Sunday for you. I'll give you a little bit of a preview of that here. In verses 9 and following, basically God says this to Isaiah. For the rest of your life, you're going to preach to people who won't listen to you. You're going to have no friends. They're going to be unimpressed with your message, ambivalent toward your God, hostile toward you. You'll be despised and rejected. People will esteem you not, and they will saw you in two, and that's how your life will end. That's the job description. 2020 would be a dream. 2020 in America would be the best year ever for Isaiah. But again, remember, for Isaiah, it's not about the external circumstances. It's not, what's, it's not about what's going on in the world. It's not about the things the cable news is reporting on. For him, for him, it's about the trauma of meeting God that's been met with the rebuilding power of grace. And so he's, here I am, send me. And then after the job description comes, he doesn't recant his send me statement. And how do we know this? Because we have 60-something more chapters and, and a whole life of faithful, frustrated ministry that was more than doable because God was in the midst of it. Which brings us lastly to the trauma of being God. And this is what will take us to the Lord's table where the Lord will also touch our lips. Why did Jesus come? Remember, this coal was taken from the altar, and the altar is the place where atoning sacrifice is made. This is a, this is a pointer, pointer ahead in history to the coming Messiah, to the first advent of Jesus Christ. The altar, where Jesus would be sacrificed. You know, Jesus was also, in the eyes of the world, a professional failure. He had no home. He had no money. And even after his resurrection, where, where there were 500 eyewitnesses to his resurrection still living, he only had 120 followers. He was a dishonored prophet. We'll, we'll cover uh, Isaiah chapter 53 later on in the series where it says that Jesus was despised and rejected by men, the object of scorn. On the cross, the foundations, it says, of the earth which is the Lord's temple, were shaken, a God quake, like the commentary says. And he, Jesus calls woes down on himself. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Here's why, so that we would never be forsaken. Jesus becomes the king who died. Isaiah's 
or I'm sorry, Uzziah's death. King Uzziah's death marked the end of Israel's prosperity and peace. Jesus' death marked the beginning of prosperity and peace for Israel and everyone who would call upon the name of the Lord. As Isaiah chapter 9 reminds us, he will reign on David's throne and of the increase of his government and rule there will be no end. And then finally, he's the messenger from heaven who touches our lips, not to cremate them, but to purify and to heal. In front of us right now, the body and the blood of Christ. This is the coal from the altar to touch our lips. This is the hem of Jesus' garment that will heal you from things that no one else has ever been able to heal. And so before we come to the table and to the bread and cup, I want to invite you to stand and let's, let's acknowledge the humility of Christ, which was that attribute that, that led him to come into the world. To show us what the cosmic king really looks like. How does scripture describe the humility of Jesus Christ? Though he was in the form of God, Jesus did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. By taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen.